You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. This is marathon season. I don't know how many of you run in marathons or half marathons. I don't understand it. Okay, I, I, I have no idea why you would do such a thing, um, but many of you probably do participate. Nikki runs in a half marathon every now and then. I don't get it. I don't understand why you, why you would put your body through such torture for two, two straight hours, um, but apparently it, it's a good thing. Who's that Christian guy who ran uh, in the Olympics, and he said, when I run, I feel the Thank you, Eric Little. I feel, thank you. And you could probably finish the quote. I feel the what of God. Now I'm, I'm having, I can't think of it. I feel the joy of the Lord. Is that what, is, is that what it is? Something like that. I, I paraphrase, but it's something like that. I never, I don't understand that. I will go for a run out of pure, because I think I need this, not for any particular joy whatsoever while I'm doing it. Uh, so I envy those who do this out of, and they enjoy it. Um, there was one time that I did run in a 10K, uh, and um, that in and of itself was hard. I don't think I could have gone one more step after 10K. Um, I don't mean to brag because I, I, I didn't do well, but I, I did finish. This was a number of years ago, and it was along Hamilton Harbor, uh, but they had, because of some flooding, if my memory serves correctly, they had a, it was a confusing course. And so you had to make certain turns. I do specifically remember, because I had lost Nikki. She was gone. She was running with me, but she is gone. So I don't know where she was. I had lost her. I was running on my own for this. And poor Aaron as the husband. And I don't run. And I was running on my own. Uh, and I, it was confusing as to where to go. And I, I chose a path, and I do specifically remember someone standing on the side, just cheering people on, yelling, you're going the wrong way. So I had to turn around and find the correct path. But if no one was there to tell me what to do or to give me encouragement along the way of, of this, is, this is how you run the race, I would have just gone the wrong direction and hopefully found my way uh, eventually. The Christian life is also compared to a race, a marathon, in, f- in fact. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, says something along the lines of that you need to run, speaking of the Christian life, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your encouragement, run with endurance the race that is set out before you, looking to Jesus. So the Christian life is compared to a a marathon. So run that marathon, looking to Jesus, and run it with endurance. Not only that, Paul himself, when he says, when I run this race, I don't take it lightly. I discipline my body, and he's speaking metaphorically here, in the training and, and the study and the time with God, I discipline my body, so that I might not be disqualified, so that I can run this Christian race, so that I can get to the finish line. The Christian life is a race. I think sometimes we, we, we want to think it's a sprint, 
to the finish line and we're trying to get to the, but it's more like a marathon that we're still running. Sometimes it's uphill, sometimes it's in the rain, sometimes it's in beautiful weather, but regardless what it is, we are, we are running in a race in this life as we look to Jesus. Whatever God has called you to, and we all come from different contexts and different people and serving in different areas, in order to keep going, there are, like that person who was on the sidelines telling me what to do, there are things that we need to be reminded of in order to keep going, in order to get to the finish line. That's my point. And this morning, it's not going to be complex. Sometimes I, you know, dig into the past and he's like, what's going on here? I'm going to keep it really simple. There are things in this passage that was said to the Apostle Paul, who sometimes we glorify almost to an inhuman level that he wasn't like you and I, but he was discouraged. He got frustrated. He felt lonely. And there were things that he, someone needs to press that button. He needs, because we're on it. We're on it. Thank you, Laura. Um, There were things that he needed to know in order to keep going on this, in this race. We've been going through this series called Naval Gazing taking our eyes off of ourselves, looking to the world. We're going to be, last week, this might be confusing, so thank you to Colin who we switched because I wasn't here. So I, I, we, he stuck with the passage that he was given. I stuck with the passage that I was studying in Acts 18. So we're in, we were in Ephesus. We're going back to a place called Corinth. Some of you might know a little bit about this place, Corinth. It's a particularly difficult place. Uh, Some commentators, since it was a a crossroads of commerce and travel, some commentators called it it was like the Vegas of the ancient world. That's what it was. It was a place of moral complexities, which led to a conundrum for trying to establish a church in such a place. Try to plant a church in the heart of Sin City. That, that's kind of what we're talking about here when we think of Corinth. It's a particularly difficult place. Moral complexity is a conundrum for establishing a church. And if you've ever gone through 1 Corinthians, you know the conundrum that Paul was dealing with with this church. You know, we, we think of, okay, all of these new things that we, we deal with when it comes to, you know, culture and church and, and, and moral complexity and all those things. Even, you know, we think of marriage and sexuality. You know, we think these are new phenomena, but they're not. I mean, these are things that the church has had to wrestle with for thousands of years. Paul is, this is what Paul is doing in, in Acts 18 when he goes to Corinth. You know, we believe as, as, as Christians that sexuality is to be protected in a self-sacrificial relationship, and we call that marriage. Corinth, though, overlooking the city up on the hill was a temple to uh, a temple of Aphrodite, where at night the worshipers or the servants of Aphrodite, in our language, would be prostitutes would roam the streets so people could worship Aphrodite. That's the culture. Then imagine saying, actually, sexuality is to be protected within a self-sacrificial relationship. That's the culture we're dealing with in Corinth here, where there really was no boundary, there really was no you know, barrier or, or, or protection of sexuality at all. In fact, in those, you know, 
uh, servants of Aphrodite. They would roam the streets. People would worship through, the, through sexuality, and it would line the pockets of the priests of the temple. It's not that different from the Vegas of the pre- present world, where you have overlord, like corporate overlords lining their pockets on the grief and the hardship of the common folk. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Like, this is not new. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It was a difficult place. One that Paul, though, was called to. It's one that he was called to. This was his calling. Because you might think, Terry, Terry might think, Paul, why would you go to such a place? This was his calling. Romans 15, Paul says something like, my ambition, and that's not, he doesn't use that in a negative way, not in like in a selfish way. He uses it more as like my purpose, what I strive for, everything I live for, or what we would use as a calling. My ambition is to go and preach the gospel where Jesus has not been named yet. So I want to go. My calling is to go to the most difficult places to preach the name of Jesus to those who have never heard of him before. That was his calling. So I'm going to go to the places like Corinth. I'm going to go to the places where people are in the darkest of situations so that they can hear about the hope of Jesus. Now, that might not specifically be your calling, but it was Paul's calling or where God has called you in your context. Sometimes I think we, we take this this concept of the calling of God and make it like a mystical map that we're trying to follow. Like, what is your calling? If you go to the library under the Christian section, half the books are trying to discover your calling from God. And that was not, I don't, Laura is like, I don't know. I don't, press the top button, top button closest to you. I have no idea. Thank you, there you go. Laura is sitting by the lights because I told her to be careful of the lights. Um, if you go to the library and discover, like, here's, you know, the Christian section, you're going to get a whole bunch of how to discover your calling from God. And we make it almost like this mystical thing that if you haven't discovered your calling, you're missing out on something in the Christian life. And I don't believe it's as mystical as we make it out to be. Calling simply, firstly, is you are called primarily to belong to Jesus. Romans 1, verse 6, says you are called to belong to Jesus. That's the first one. Not only that, you are called not just to belong to Jesus. You are called to become like Jesus. We looked at these passages when we looked at the image of God series that we did in the spring. In Romans 8, 28, you all, you, so many of you know these verses. We know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. Now, if you look at the next verse, what is the purpose that that is being referred to there? That you would, you are predestined to become like who? Jesus, that's the calling. So not only, your primary calling is not only to belong to Jesus, it's to become 
like Jesus. I think the discovery that we're kind of wrestle with, the mystical, is more just like discovering life. That you discover new people and new situations, new jobs, new contexts as you walk through life or a new area to serve in in church. That's more the discovering, the calling that I think we're looking for. Even for Paul, think about it. His calling that he got from God really didn't originate from him by spending three days in some darkness retreat to find his calling. You know, he he was in a church, who, and he belonged to Jesus, and he sought to become like Jesus, and there was the church that prayed and fasted and said, Paul, I think this is what you should do. It was the church who sent him out to, to give him, this is what we think God is calling you to. But all Paul was doing was belonging to Jesus and becoming like Jesus, and he took that seriously, and the church laid hands on him. We're called to belong to and become like Jesus. But also, we are called to invite others to do the same thing. We invite others to belong to and become like Jesus. An amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 20 says, as you've been reconciled to God, if you've been reconciled to God, as you have been reconciled to God, you now have been given a ministry of reconciliation. You make an appeal to people to be reconciled to God. That's the calling that I've given you. So as you have belonged to Jesus and become like Jesus, you now invite others to do the same. That's your ministry that you've been given. That's what you are called to. In whatever context you find yourself in, discovering calling looks a lot like just discovering life in whatever God, and wherever God places you and the people he's put in your life. C.J. Stroud from the Houston Texans. Go sports. So if you don't like sports, I'm sorry. I'm a football guy, so that's what I got. You gotta give me more feedback when I say things. You gotta give me like either a smile or like don't forget it, Aaron. You gotta give me more than a blank stare. C.J. Stroud uh, from the Houston Texans said this recently in a press conference. This is C.J. Stroud, if you don't know, I know all of you know this because you all are just into football as I am. Uh, C.J. Stroud is like, a, like, he's like the next phenom. He's the next, he's the next quarterback. He's the rookie, uh, and he's bawling out. He said this in a press conference. A lot of people don't get to live the life that I do. It's hard, but it's a privilege. I'm blessed enough to wake up every day to walk, to talk, interact with people, and to play football. That's what I do. I play football. These are all things we take for granted from a day-to-day basis. I try to do my best to thank God through all that because of his grace and mercy. I believe Jesus laid his life on the cross for me. I really believe that. said this in a public press conference, by the way. This is bigger than just football. And if I have to use football for his purpose and my calling to spread the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ, then I'll do that. I think that's what God wants me to do. That was C.J. Stroud. Go Texans. No, I don't like the Texans, so don't go Texans. I'll cheer for C.J. Stroud, though. You see, C.J. Stroud, this wasn't some mystical thing. He just, he's good at football. In whatever context he finds himself in, my calling now is to invite others to belong to and become like Jesus. In whatever I do, that's my calling. So you might think, Aaron, I've got little, like, you're trying to find some 
mystical calling. Aaron, I've got little kids at home. You know, you, you feel the shame of like, well, Paul went to Corinth, C.J. Stroud's playing, that's just what God, that's where God has them. Aaron, I got little kids at home. Don't be ashamed. God has given you those children. That's where God has called you. He's given you those children. Don't be ashamed that you're not doing more. That's where he's called you. That's where you are in life. Don't be ashamed of that. Aaron, I work a normal job. So you're filled with shame that you should be doing more. Don't be. God has given you that job. He's called you to that job in order to invite people to belong to and become like Jesus. Don't be ashamed of that. Aaron, I only play percussion. That's all I know how to play. Don't be filled with shame because we got a spot for you if you play percussion at the church. So, uh, so this is not a weight upon you. Guys, in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, I know I have to get to the actual passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's an amazing verse. It says, you are an ambassador of Jesus. Think about it. You're an ambassador of Jesus. Like a guy, who go, a guy or girl who goes to a certain country and say, I represent this country. You represent Jesus in whatever context that you find yourself in. You are his ambassador. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God makes his appeal to the world through you. That's how this works. It cannot occupy this mere fraction of like one hour on a Sunday. That's all I'm an ambassador of Jesus for. No, wherever you are, you are an ambassador for Jesus. That's where you're called to, to invite people to belong to and become like Jesus. It can't occupy a mere fraction of your time. That's your calling. Someone give me an amen. Someone give me an amen. They did, sorry. Sorry, I didn't hear you. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little frustrated. Maybe I'm just, I'm getting into the passage too much because we're gonna get there in a second. We spend much time in condemnation of the world and be like, man, the world's going to pot, you know, forget it. God has given you a giant reason to be here. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world and you are, you are not to either. You are here for a reason. Even church, man. Restoration Church is not a perfect church, but you're here. You are called to appeal to people that they belong to and become become like Jesus. That's why you're here. That's what you do. You're not here because it's a perfect church. You're here because you're here. This is where God has called you. And that's what you're to do. He's given you a giant reason to be where you are. You are his ambassador. Parent, you're not just trying to keep your kid alive. You're an ambassador of Jesus in your child's life. Brother, sister, you're not just clocking into work. You're an ambassador of Jesus at your workplace. That's why you're there. What would that look like for you if you were to take that seriously every day? Wake up, I'm I'm ambassador of Jesus wherever I go. What would that look like? I got a feeling it would look different. I don't know what it would look like in your context. What would that look like for you? I'm an ambassador of Jesus. That's why I want to hear stories. I didn't send it out because I felt bad. I sent out too many messages, but I'm going to send another one out. I sent out a link and said, I want stories to share called Change the Narrative, that being an ambassador of Jesus and talking about our faith is not abnormal. I have received one, one story that I already shared, okay? I want to hear more stories. However, another story I heard, not through that link, that I was super encouraged about this week, 
Uh, last year for Christmas, we served at Missions to the Margins. We served at a, uh, to feed the homeless. Like you're an ambassador for Jesus by feeding the homeless, encouraging them. Uh, my friend Jeff, who has this ministry, does Bible studies. It's an amazing ministry. I didn't realize that, I thought it was just a one-off thing, like we did it once. But there's people, two people, Joyce and Nolan Blair, who have been serving every single Thursday evening from that time until now. Every single Thursday evening. They feed the homeless through missions to the margins. I had no idea. I was super encouraged, by the way, Joyce, when I heard that. She didn't tell me. <laughs> In some ways, that's the way it's supposed to be. Like, we're not, we're not doing, like, impressive things. We're just doing it through what God has given me. I'm an ambassador of Jesus. That calling is beautiful, but I won't lie. It can be really hard. The calling God places on your life is beautiful, but it can be really hard. God calls us to difficult places and difficult people beyond what we control. Look at the passage in Acts 18, verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, as he should be. It says, uh, he was testifying to the, Jew, the, to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So he was doing his calling. Like, this is what I do. I, I'm proclaiming the name of Jesus to those who don't know about him. So that's what he's doing. I'm testifying the name of Jesus to people that don't know about him yet. That's what I'm doing. That's my calling. So you think I'm living in, you know, I'm living in this, you know, this sweet spot of what God has called me to do. But then it says in verse 6, it says they opposed and reviled him. And that reviled means like a public slander. So they're not, they're not hiding their distaste for Paul. And they're not, just call, they're not just saying, we don't like you. you know, they're slandering him, spreading stories, things that aren't true about him publicly amongst the crowd. And this isn't the first time. We've been going through Paul. Like, this has happened over and over and over and over and over and over again. Even though Paul is in this sweet spot of his calling, it's the frustration of ministry, the frustration of people, like over and over and over and over again. It says in verse 6, he shakes the dust off his clothes, probably half out of frustration, half as a symbolic gesture of what he says next that says, I am innocent, blood be on your own hands, I'm innocent, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. That symbolic gesture indicated what, exactly what he said, that he was innocent. Like, I can't force you to believe, so I'm moving on. I'll go to the Gentiles. And all of that is true. He can't force people into, to, into believing, into faith. He, he doesn't bear that responsibility. He only bears the responsibility of telling them they have to believe it. Throughout his ministry, there, and throughout this ministry, there's this shift to Gentiles away from Jews that happen from place to place to place to place. And he does that here. And, and if you follow along with what Cheris was reading, he goes into the house of uh, 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 Titius Justice, who was a worshiper of God, people like Crispus get saved and other people get saved. It's amazing. And all of that is true. Uh, and God still works through Paul. Interestingly, he doesn't abandon the Jews entirely. So we get this feeling that he's never going to, he doesn't like Jews. He's never going to go back to them. He has a heart, he has a place in his heart. If you follow a Colin, uh, uh, he's in Ephesus, the very next passage or the very next chapter. And it says he walks, he waltzes right back into the synagogue and starts talking to the Jews about Jesus. So it's not like he's given up on the Jews in this passage. Now, it's true that in Corinth, maybe he moved on to different people, but he didn't completely give up on Jews. Or say, you're, you're hopeless. 
But through his gesture, it seemed to indicate, but regardless in Corinth, that is true. But, and as I read this passage and I meditated on this passage, with what happens next, there's a lot of reason to believe that even though that was true, you can't help but notice there's this undercurrent, something else going on in Paul here. Uh, a frustration going on. And it, with what comes next, like I say, I think it's fairly obvious that there's something brewing in Paul. We find out later in this letter, though, uh, in, in his letter to the Corinthians in, first, in a book called 1 Corinthians, though Acts gives the events, Paul goes into what's going on inside of him in that letter when he goes to visit the people of Corinth. And he says, I came to you in weakness. I was feeling really weak. We don't know that from Acts, but he says that in 1 Corinthians. I was feeling really weak. The call of God can be a frustrating venture. I won't lie. When God calls you to something, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It can be really frustrating. It doesn't mean it's not the call of God. It just means that's hard, what he's called you to do. We tend to glorify the call. Like once you discover it, then it's like you've got everything you need. That's not true. It's going to be really hard. It can be frustrating. In any calling or any task, inevitably, you will enter a period thinking, and I think Paul might have been here. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Is this worth it? I will fully admit, there have been weeks as a pastor thinking, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Parents, you might not tell your kids this. The people that God has called you to, which might be your little son or daughter, you might hide this from your kids, but you might be thinking, man, God, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not what it used to be. Paul might be thinking, you know, give me Cyprus. Give me Antioch. Give me Berea. I'll even take Athens again. But this... I don't want this anymore. I mean, the call of God is frustrating because you don't live in a vacuum, right? You don't live in a vacuum. You don't experience the things of God all alone. You don't live in a vacuum. Our callings are never lived out in a vacuum. The race that is set before us is run facing uncontrollable elements. You 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 might wake up in the morning and you go out to run your Christian life, run your race, and it's cold and rainy. It's not a nice, warm morning. You still got to run. It's hard. It's frustrating. You know, there's uncontrollable situations and even more so, let's be honest, uncontrollable people that you got to deal with. The other day I was watching, uh, I was picking up kids from school and there's a mom and her little daughter and this daughter was just screaming. And I smiled and I'm like, I probably shouldn't smile because this mom is struggling, you know tried to help in some way. I was probably completely helpless in the situation. But this, mom, this, this kid is just screaming, and the mom's struggling, trying to corral this kid. I guarantee when that mom was, like, asking God for a child, that's not what they're thinking, you know? <laughs> this is not the situation that you're thinking of when you're saying, God, give me a child. But it's part of it. 
That's part of the job. That's part of the calling. It doesn't mean that's not your calling, but it means the calling is difficult. Once frustration sets in, it becomes constant. Even when good things are happening, as it was in Paul, with Paul's life, people are still coming to the Lord. Good things are happening. God is still using me. It's hard to shake the narratives that start to build up in your head. Here's the narratives, and then you're going to understand where I'm getting these from in a second. Here's the narratives that start to happen when you become frustrated with the calling of God in your life. Whether this is you, sometimes this is me. One is you begin to do things for God, not with him. You begin to do things for God, not with him. This is my cross, and rather than him bearing that with me, you view God almost as a far-off Pontius Pilate, like crossing his arms, waiting for you to do your task, serve him, bear your cross, standing far off, giving some indifferent approval that it's all on you and people's responses are all on you to control the situation. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing things for God, but I'm not doing them with him. That's literally the definition how you serve out of your own strength when you're just doing things for God, but not with him. Secondly, you begin to believe that I'm serving others, but I'm not going to give my life to them. Become very protectionist. I got to protect myself. People are uncontrollable. They say hurtful things. You can almost become very hardened, cynical toward people. So I got to serve because God wants me to serve, but I don't actually like the people I'm serving. I'm not opening my life up to them. It's like the church that is like filled with smiles and handshakes at the door, but they never invite you over to their home. They don't want to open their life to you. They'll serve God because they're on a hospitality team but they don't want to open up their life. It can happen. I mean, why would Paul open up his life to these people? You become untrusting and cynical of people. Thirdly, you begin to get this really difficult feeling. I'm all alone doing this. No one is with me. I don't mean to be condemning because... That's a really difficult feeling to feel. I'm all alone. No one is here to help me, and no one shares the same struggle that I do. I'm all alone in bearing this burden. Church can be like that. Like, how many times have you been in church where you're sitting, I'm here to serve, I'm here to do my Christian thing, and you're really struggling? You look around and you're like, no one else struggles with the same things I do. Like, how many times have you been tempted to believe that? I can guarantee that's not true. But we believe that. I'm all alone. See, when it gets so bad, we don't just think this is a hard calling. We begin to think this isn't my calling then. We stop the race. We pull out of the race. The temptation is to stop running. Paul himself needed to hear some really important things in order for him to keep going. It says God, is do- God was doing good things through him. It says many of the Corinthians in verse 8, believe- hearing, believed Paul and were baptized. But then it says this. It seems kind of out of the blue. God shows up to Paul in a dream. He just shows up to Paul in a dream and he tells him some things that are really, really important. 
that Paul needed to hear in order to keep going. And this is for you too. This isn't just for Paul. This is for you. If you're like, I'm tired, I'm frustrated with what God has called me to do, you need to know these things that, that God told Paul. Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, here, this is what he said, don't be afraid. Clearly Paul was afraid. Don't be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Here's why. Here's the main truth that you need to know, for I am with you. You're not just serving things and doing things for me. I am with you wherever you go. Every time, most of the times when, when the Bible says do not fear, do you know what the reason is? It's do not fear because there's no, there's no reason to be afraid or do not fear uh, because you're strong enough. Do not fear because you've, you know, you've, got all, you've done your Bible school training, you've got an MDiv, and you're a pastor now, so you have no reason to be afraid. What's the most verses that say do not fear immediately are followed by what? I'm with you. I'm with you. Do not fear. I am with you. Most of our fear, I think, a lot of our fear, I don't want to make any dogmatic statements, a lot of our fear not, don't just come from the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's because we feel like there's no one who is with us. We feel like we're all alone. That's where a lot of our fear comes from. That's why Paul says, that's why God says to Paul, I am with you. Wherever you go, I am with you. You don't just serve me. I serve with you. You know, when I quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says, I came to my weakness. Actually, Paul says, I came to my weakness and I didn't use, you know, lofty words. I couldn't use, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't inspiring. I wasn't impressive to the people of Corinth that they would have faith in what I can do. In fact, Paul says, no, it was the demonstration of the spirit within me that people had faith in. This amazing hope that God is not Pontius Pilate. He's not some far-off being. He's Emmanuel, God with us. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I think in church, and I've tried to every Sunday morning especially, but you could do this Monday morning as well. This is what I repeat to myself. It's not, okay, Aaron, make sure you have ever, all your ducks in a row so that you won't worry about how things go. It's not, Aaron, uh, make sure your sermon is tight so that people will be changed. It's, Aaron, I'm with you. You don't do this alone. In fact, it's not, it's, it is out of your control. I am with you and we'll work through you. Not only that, it says, for I am with you and no one will attack or harm you. I will protect you. I will protect you. Second Thessalonians, Paul says a very similar thing. It says, God is faithful. He will guard us from the evil one. Now, obviously, this can look different and different. We've just learned about those who are persecuted around the world. I fully believe, though, God will protect us in what we need most, which is our faith. If we put our trust in him, he will protect us. He will protect our faith, our trust in him, that ultimately our lives are in him and no one can touch that if we place our trust in him. 
this truth allows us not to be hardened by the difficult things that come, but to still open up our lives because we say, well, ultimately I'm in the hands of God. My protection isn't based upon me. Thirdly, for I have many in this city who are my people. You're not alone. Paul, you don't, you're not here as Superman saving the city of Corinth. I have many people who are here with you. You're not alone. When I'm discouraged, that's the number one thing I feel. Even though I know I'm not alone, I feel alone. No one understands my struggle. God says I'm with you, but so are other people. You're not alone. It might not be who you expect, who is with you. How many of you, when signing up for a Bible study, you're like, oh man, none of my people are a part of it. You know, none of my friends are at that Bible study. I don't think I want to go. I don't think I want to go. It's going to be weird. I don't know those people. I think God will work through you more if you're not with your people. You don't get to choose sometimes who is there and who God is going to work through you, who, who, is God, who God is going to work through in order to encourage you to keep going. I don't think you can control that. I think God has people in your life that maybe you didn't choose that are there to, that are there to encourage you. So maybe you, you thought, I'm not going to go to that women's event. I don't know anyone there. Or I don't have any baking experience. <laughs> Or maybe you wake up on that day and you're like, mm, something's holding you back. I would encourage you to go. Sometimes you don't get to choose who God has in your life to encourage you. And that's been true of me. In fact, sometimes the people I've chosen that I thought would be there to encourage me weren't. And God had different people. For Paul, there's this beautiful couple at the beginning of the passage that Cherish read. By the way, I'm almost done, so hang tight. See some fidgeting going on. Paul had this couple at the beginning that Cherish read named Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who basically, due to anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire, were kicked out of Rome uh, and went to Corinth and probably met Paul through the, the trade. They were craftsmen. Uh, Paul was a tent maker, and that's, prob that's probably a more specific way of describing that Paul was a leather worker, like he, he made things out of leather. Same with Priscilla and Aquila. They were, they were leather workers, tent makers, just like Paul. So he probably met them through their trade. They were all craftspeople. I don't know if Paul would have known them beforehand, or, but God puts this couple in his life, and they become like the closest ministry companions family that Paul had during the rest of his Christian journey. Like you see him repeating Priscilla and Aquila over and over and over again. And like they were so close for Paul, like completely necessary. And I don't think Paul chose them. I think God chose them to encourage Paul. Through something like anti-Semitism, God uses Priscilla and Aquila in Paul's life to encourage him. If you are not, loneliness is really hard. 
If you are not in a season of loneliness, I would encourage you that there are many in this room who are in a season of loneliness. Be generous with your presence. Just because you might not be feeling lonely, the person beside you probably is, and they need your encouragement. That's why you don't just come to church uh, in order to be filled. You got to show up at church to encourage the person sitting beside you. That's why you come to church. It goes both ways here. Be generous with your presence. That's a quote from Nikki Ottaway. Colin would know more about this than I would, but um, in, in the cycling races, it's not just one person who goes, you might, they might put a, you know, a, what do they give out, a medal, crown? I don't know what they, what do they give a crown? Do they give a crown, a robe, <laughs> a medal? Is that what it is? Oh, a jersey, that's right. Yeah, that, of course, the yellow jersey, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's not the green jacket, it's the yellow jersey. Green jacket's golf. Um, you get a yellow jersey. One person gets that jersey, but there is a whole team of people that get that person to the finish line. One person doesn't make it to the finish line, right? You have a whole team of people that you are relying on in order to get to the finish line. You're not alone. You have to rely upon the people who are racing with you in order to get there. For Paul, he was not some hero of the faith that got to the finish line all on his own. He needed to be reminded over and over. I'm sure this isn't the only time, over and over and over again. Paul, I'm with you. You're not alone. So that Paul eventually could say in 2 Timothy, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I got to the end. Some of you need the same encouragement as Paul had to keep going. God says, I'm with you. You are not alone. God, thank you for your word that it is encouraging to us as we walk, as we run this Christian life, this race that you have set out before us and look to Jesus. It's not easy what you have called us to do. We go to difficult places Sometimes you go to, we, you are call us to difficult people that could be in this church, in this city, in your own home. But you have called us there because that's where we are. You also tell us, I am with you. pray for these things in your great name. Amen.